0: Now, get out your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians. You can turn to the whole thing. You can find it starting on page 980 of the Pew Bible. Uh, We are starting a new series here this morning in the book of Philippians. Uh, We have no time to waste. Paul, who we're going to see is the author of this letter, we're about to read, tells his young protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4:13 to devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Well, we're going to take Paul very literally today. Before we spend upwards to half a year walking through Philippians verse by verse, I want to walk through the whole of Philippians in one sermon. And to do that, we're going to read the whole book of Philippians in one sermon. When's the last time you read a whole book of the Bible in one sitting? It's good practice. We did it back with Colossians. We're going to do it again today. Plus, this is how these letters were originally received. In Colossians 4.16, Paul talks about that letter being read among the church. Well, literacy rates, we estimated at the time, were about 15%. So most of that church would have been illiterate. So that means that letter would have been read publicly together in the corporate gathering of the church. When it's 2,000 years ago and you're a new church and you get a letter from the Apostle Paul, you read the whole thing immediately. Well, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to break it up into pieces. We're going to read a big chunk of it. We'll draw a couple of big general truths and themes that we're going to look at in great detail over the next few months. Um, and then we'll read some more and do the same thing. This is a good exercise for both of us. It is much harder for me to preach one sermon on a whole book than it is for me to preach one sermon on one verse. Right. So this is going to be challenging for, for all of us. And plus the nature of the book of Philippians makes this a pretty difficult task for us here this morning. Everyone loves the book of Philippians. right? This is kind of the, the quotable kind of coffee cup book. It's Paul's warmest Letter, it's arguably his most encouraging. It's his most quotable. Here's a few of them. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. To live as Christ, to die as gain. Count others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Jesus, though in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, think about these things. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. That's all Philippians. And I skipped some really good ones. People love these verses, and those people love this letter, but it's a harder letter to summarize. It's not brilliantly systematic like the book of Romans. Its structure is a little bit strange. There's so many different good parts that it's hard to say what the one main part is and kind of what the one big idea of the letter is. Now, I always start off studying a book or a passage of the Bible simply by reading it over and over and over again. If you think you've read it enough, read it a few more times. And it's amazing what you'll find on the 10th reading that you won't find the first. So after just reading this for a couple of weeks, I read it then one more time for the purpose of just jotting down a couple of main things that I thought we had to touch in this sermon. And I first wrote down 10 key ideas from Philippians We obviously don't have time for that, so we've got to be more concise. How can we narrow down and at least try to summarize this difficult-to-summarize book? Well, I just fell back on my favorite and most simple tools for understanding Scripture. Repetition. Always be looking for repetition. Repetition reveals relevance. If scripture repeats something it's telling you, pay attention to that something. Well, as you're about to see, as we read this book, there's some pretty significant repetition in the book of Philippians. And the first one that we're going to see is joy. Forms of the word joy occur 16 times in this very short letter. Starts in verse 4. Paul makes his prayer with joy. Then in verse 18, he's rejoicing about the gospel going forth. And it's like it keeps going and it keeps building. There's joy after joy, rejoice after rejoice. There's this building volcano of joy that then just erupts into the double imperative of chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. That's a command. So this letter is to some degree about joy. So we've got to take that into consideration. Well, what else? You actually can't say that joy is the main theme of the letter because I don't think it is. Though Philippians is difficult to figure out structurally what is not difficult is to see what is the very heart and soul of the letter. And that heart and soul is chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. We'll see when we get there that people argue sometimes that this is a hymn, a song, a poem. But it's all about Jesus Christ. So what we're going to do and what we're going to see is that everything else in this letter revolves around this center. It revolves around Christ. If it's impressive that joy is repeated 16 times, Christ is. Is repeated 37 times. So as we'll see, Paul's main focus in this letter is ultimately the gospel. Everything he says, every point he makes, ultimately comes back to that. He first mentions the gospel in verse 5, then verse 7, then verse 12, then verse 16, and on and on and on, nine times. And since the gospel is about Christ, Since the gospel is Christ, look at verse 12, you'll see the advance of the gospel. And then in verse 15, he talks about preaching Christ, because they're the same thing. The gospel is Christ. And thus Christ is the ultimate concern of Philippians. And knowing Christ is the driving passion behind Paul's writing. Chapter 3, verse 8, he says he counts everything. As loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus is Lord. And that's the only way that he can say in chapter one, verse 21, that to live is Christ. So this letter is about Christ, who is the gospel. And then you combine that with our first theme that we mentioned, joy. And I'm going to make the case that Philippians is about gospel generated joy. That's going to serve as our title for this series. It's about joy, but even more, it's about the source of that joy. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we're not going to stop there. Even, we then want to see how this gospel-generated joy actually affects Our everyday lives, we want to see the context in which such joy um, builds and develops itself. And so we find a third dominant theme of the letter, which is Paul's concern for the church. Especially the unity of the church, humility in the church. Five times we talked about this word, a form of this word in Sunday school. Five times Paul is going to use the word koinonia, which means partnership or fellowship or communion. Paul's concerned about the church. Christ is not just concerned with saving individuals, but creating a people, a family, a community. And it is in that community that we are all about to read, that we're about to read about, that all of this is to be played out. All right, so we need joy. Joy comes from Jesus. And that joy that comes from Jesus then unites together a, a community of humility that encourages one another in the faith and that then evangelizes the world. That's the book of Philippians. So we're going to look at three big but brief ideas for us today that will then take us months to unpack and then a lifetime to live out. We're going to look at the beginning first at circumstance, independent joy. We need to understand what this joy is, what really is joy. We'll talk about that. Then we'll see the heart of the letter. We'll see that this is a Jesus-generated joy. And then we'll close by seeing that this is a community-creating joy. As our goal through all this is to know Christ and in knowing Christ, to love Christ and in loving Christ, to be like Christ. And in doing that, we find great joy in him. Listen, you struggle with joy. I know you struggle with joy. I struggle with joy. So I'm selfishly very excited about this study. I'm selfishly very excited about getting to look at God's word and what he teaches us about Jesus and how that then creates joy in us. Here's where that joy is found. And so my prayer is that God would use this book to convince us of that truth. So let's, let's start. Let's read. This is the most important part, right? We preach God's word here. That's, that's it. My job is to take God's word. Expositional preaching means I am to expose God's word to you. That's it. Not my words, but his. So you especially need this open in front of you this morning or you're going to be lost. We're going to read chapter one first and then we'll stop. I know this might be a little bit different for you, but pay attention. Stay focused, engaged with the word. And then after chapter one, we'll take a little time to talk about it. Philippians chapter one. This is God's word for you this morning. Paul writes, Paul and Timothy I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's stop there and let's pray, and then we'll continue. Father, I am thankful for your word. Father, there's a lot of it here this morning. Father, give us joy. Give us desire. Give us a great love uh, for your word. And so, Father, I ask that it would be center. I ask that you would speak through us, uh, through your word. Father, many of us come into this place today struggling Suffering, fearful, uh, doubtful, uh, depressed, distracted, so many other things. Father, show us Christ. Point us, give us the great joy that can be found in him and him alone. Show us that joy through your word in these next few minutes. And we ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so this is an impossible task. But let's, let's try. Let's, let's fly. We'll look at one and two in great detail next time. Don't do what I'm about to do and gloss over the greetings of these letters. They're important. Paul is writing Paul the slave of Christ Jesus to the saints in Christ Jesus in the grace and peace from Christ Jesus. Well, that'll be next week. And Paul begins his letter to the church in Philippi with a prayer of thanksgiving for them and for their partnership with him in the gospel. And he doesn't just pray like we often just pray. Verse 4, he prays for them with joy. We're going to talk a lot about joy. We're going to define it in great detail as we go. I've been reading a lot about joy. Joy from the Bible's perspective and from the world's perspective. I just went onto Amazon and I put in the word joy under books. And I just bought like the top ones. And I'm just reading what the Dalai Lama says about joy and what does some designer says about joy. What all of these other non-Christian sources say about joy? They're very different. We're going to look at that. The Greek word here for joy is kara, which is obviously related to the word uh, kara, which is obviously related to the word charis which is the Greek word for grace. So if charis is grace, then kera is joy because of grace. And as we've already mentioned, it is from the gospel that grace comes from Christ. That's going to be our second point. Jesus generated joy. Well, that then makes this joy something entirely different from what the world means by joy. One of the books that I'm reading right now is just titled Joyful. It's a pretty positive title. And at the very beginning, it defines joy as this. It says, joy is an intense momentary experience of positive emotion. Nope, that's not it. Wrong. (laughs) Off to a bad start, joyful book. That's not biblical joy. And that's very clear from Paul's situation, from his circumstances. Sixteen times, he uses the word joy. He's praying with joy. He's rejoicing about the gospel going forth. He's full of joy. We just read it, and Paul has much to be joyful for. Like the fact that he's in prison. He writes this letter all about joy from jail. He goes out of his way to remind us of that four times in the first chapter. 7, 13, 14, and 17. The ESV translates it imprisonment, but the Greek literally means he is in chains. Joy. Also, his beloved friends in Philippi are suffering persecution. Look at verse 28. He has to encourage them not to fear their opponents. Do you have actual opponents? The Philippians do. And not only that, verse 29, we see that God himself has granted That word is another word based on charis, the grace root. It literally means that they have been graced. They have been favored by God. For what? To suffer. Oh, God's favor's on you. He's really blessed you. You got a new car. Or you got the raise. Or you got more money. Paul says God's favor's on you. To suffer. So the church he loves is suffering. Joy. And the church he loves is under assault from false teaching. We'll see in chapter 3, verse 2, that he has to warn them about the dogs who are trying to draw them away from the gospel. Then in chapter 4, verse 2, we'll see that there's even division in the church itself that he loves. So prison, opponents, suffering, false teaching, division, rejoice. It's insane. From the world's perspective, that is... From the perspective of that book's definition of joy, it's like James 1-2. We don't know what to do with James 1-2. Count it all. Joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What? I, I hate trials. I want things to be smooth and easy. I want to be comfortable and entertained. I want Osteen to be right. I want to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. But that's not how this works. That's not biblical joy. So there is some sort of joy here in this letter in the midst of all these terrible circumstances. So this must then be a joy that is a circumstance independent joy. And we see that especially with Paul's words in verse 23. Look at 23. He's in prison, he might die. He's facing death, and so he's thinking, obviously, about life and death. And what's he thinking? Oh, which is better? Uh, you know, which, which would I choose? Would I choose life? I've never had that conversation with myself. Like, do I, would I choose to live or to die right now? He's not sure. Even in the face of the worst possible circumstances, facing the most terrible thing in the world, death. Look at verse 21. How would you finish that sentence? To live is blank. Honestly, no, don't give me the Bible's answer. How would you finish that sentence? How is your life demonstrating that you would finish that sentence? What is life to you? What's the theme, the, the meaning, the purpose of it? What are you living for? And man, how would you finish the second part of that verse? To die is blank. I mean, honestly, terrifying. Unsettling? Uncertain? I Try not to think about it? Let's be honest. Paul's answers are crazy. He could die, and yet he rejoices. He could die, and he's considering choosing that option. How? Look in his answers in verse 21. Because to live is Christ, which then means to die is gain. How in the world is it gain? To die, well, we'll see that as we go. But it's because in Christ, who is the Defeater of Death, well, death now becomes nothing more than the means through which we are now ushered into the presence of God. That makes death then the thing that gets me to the place of the best possible, most joy-filled place. Listen, well, an unimaginable joy. Then this is a joy beyond the likes of which. All of us almost experience. Guys, life is hard. I quote the princess bride all the time. Right? Life is pain, princess. Anyone who says otherwise is trying to sell you something. Well, that's what the, Paul agrees. <laughs> life is pain. Paul's life was pain. Life is often miserable. The Bible never sugarcoats that fact. There is no prosperity gospel. There is no promise of things going well, or of prosperity, or of things circumstantially going well. But there is something better. There is joy. And this is a joy that circumstances can't touch. This joy is a deep, down, inside, quiet, settled conviction that all is well. Even when surrounded by circumstances that are far from well. That's joy. That's why like I last minute, a few days ago, said, Annie, I need you to sing this song. And made him sing this new song. And they did it masterfully like we've sung it a hundred times. All will be well. All is well. All must be well in our living or in dying. All must be well. That's Philippians 1. That's joy. This this settled conviction that all is well. That's going to be my working definition of joy. The settled conviction that all objectively is well. How can Paul say that, that all is well in the face of all the not well circumstances around him? It's because of his confidence. Look at verse one. Look at verse six, chapter one, verse six. He is sure. He is confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will hold you. Fast, He will get you there. Here's why you can have confidence, because it's not dependent upon you in any way, but dependent entirely on him. And he is faithful, and he will surely do it. So there's the joy. That's where the joy comes from. There's the confidence, because it's settled, it's firm, it's fixed. But where does such a circumstance, independent joy, come from? Look at this. It's only the gospel. It's only Jesus. So let's keep reading. Let's read all of chapter 2. Look down there with me. Here's the heart of the letter, 6 through 11. everything revolves around this. So let's read all of 2, and we'll focus on that. Chapter 2, verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love... Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my present, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear fear. And trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's stop there. Point number two. There's, again, there's like 8,000 points in that text, so forgive me. A circumstance, independent joy is only possible if it's a Jesus-generated joy. Guys, honestly, I'm preaching all of Philippians in part so that we can just spend some extended time in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. 2, 1 through 11, just the perfect fusion of our final two points today. He's calling for unity in the church. Verse 2, same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. Man, how different is that than many churches today? We're going to talk a lot about unity and why, according to God, that's so important. But, but how is such countercultural unity possible, especially in such a culturally diverse context like ours? How can we, who at last count were made up of over 25 different nations, how can we be one? Verse 3. Well, humility is going to be part of it. Humility is everything. Count others more significant Then yourself, verse four, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. I think my girls are probably getting tired of me quoting these verses to them. But it's because those two verses right there by themselves, if we could do those two things, we change everything. Basically every issue you've ever had with someone is because one or both of you were not counting the other more significant than yourself and were not looking to their interests but to your own. Guys, these verses are potentially transformative, but how rare is this in actuality? How can we, selfish sinners, and not only regular, everyday selfish sinners, but 21st century American consumeristic, materialistic, selfie generation sinners, how can we actually count others more significant than ourselves and look to their interests above our own? The bad news is that we can't, apart from Christ. And that's why verses 6 through 11 are so important. The heart of the letter. The heart of the Christian faith. Look at verse 6. Christ who was God. There's the deity of Christ. He didn't take advantage of that pretty amazing privilege. But he set it aside. Verse 7. Emptying himself. What does that mean? How did he empty himself? It tells us. By taking on the form of a servant. He didn't set something aside. He added something. He took on flesh. He became one of us. Jesus Who is God became man. So we have the divinity, the deity of Christ, and then the humanity of Christ. God became man. That's Christmas. Verse 8. And in becoming man, here's why He humbled Himself all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's Easter. That's, that's, That's the whole gospel. The person and the work of Christ summarized for us in a few short verses. And everything else radiates out from this. Circumstances cannot touch your joy because of this. A humble, united community in which we seek the good of others before our own is possible only because of this because of Jesus Christ. God has come down to us, God has become one of us to die. Why? Again, what does God dying for us do for us? Paul tells us. Let's keep reading. Look at chapter 3. I'm just going to do 1 through 11. We'll stop at verse 11. Chapter 3, verse 1. Why does Christ die? Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for this confidence in the flesh, I have more. that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's why Christ died. That's what it does for us. Righteousness. First, notice how uncircumstantial this joy is. Paul again says rejoice in the Lord in verse 1, and then right away in verse 2, he's having to warn them about the false teachers that are seeking to draw them away from Christ Even in this warm and wonderful letter of joy, Paul is not one to mince words. He's not afraid of some harsh language. People get offended today if you call out uh, false teachers. Oh, but he's so handsome and he's so nice and he's so positive. But look at how Paul deals with false teachers. He calls them dogs. He calls them evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. Pretty strong language. Well, what's that about? Why is this such a big deal? It's because their teaching is in contradiction to the gospel. Go read the book of Galatians and see what Paul thinks of any teaching that is in contradiction to the gospel. Their teaching, according to verse 3 and verse 4, must be something about having confidence in the flesh. Meaning, confidence in ourselves. Confidence in the language that Paul is about to use in our own self Righteousness, confidence in our ability to do something to establish our own righteousness. We're going to talk about it in great detail, but we are all of us every day trying to establish our righteousness, our rightness, our goodness. Almost everything that you do, you're trying to prove your worth, your value, trying to prove that you stack up, that you meet the qualifications. Your righteousness is sort of like your spiritual resume, and every single one of us is trying to demonstrate how great and how good we are. And that's what every other religion is about. Be good, perform these rituals, do these things, let your good outweigh your bad, and then you'll be good enough for God. And so then in verses 4 through 6, Paul lists all the things that demonstrate how great he is. He's showing us how much more righteous he actually is than all those other guys who have confidence in their own righteousness. All those things that you put your trust in, well, Paul's were better. But now, verse 7, he counts everything, all of his credentials, all of his goodness as loss. Verse 8 he now counts all of that as rubbish. It's, it's refuse. It's, it's dung in the Greek. It's, it's nothing. All your attempts to establish your own righteousness are nothing more than human waste, Paul says. Why? Because of verse 9. Here's what the gospel does for us. Here's why. This is utterly unique and absolutely different than everything else. Paul says, here's what the death of Christ does for us. Here's what the gospel gives us. Not having a righteousness of my own, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that is from God. You see that difference? This is so important. Everyone is trying to establish their own righteousness. The gospel is that you can't establish your own righteousness. We're going to see, we've talked about it a lot, that relationship requires righteousness. The problem for us is that to be in relationship with God, the God who is perfect righteousness, requires that we be perfectly righteous as well. There's a standard. And if you meet that standard, you can qualify. You can earn your way into relationship with God. But here's the bad news. It's impossible because you're a sinner. Even if you were to start right now and go the rest of however many years or decades you have left without ever sinning again. And by the way, you won't make it an hour. But if you could go the rest of your life, you still wouldn't qualify. Because absolute perfection is required. And you don't have it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the righteousness of God, So the gospel says that you need righteousness, but you don't have it, and there's nothing you can do to get it. The gospel starts off with very bad news, but verse 9 is the very good news. The gospel is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The gospel is that he who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel is that though all your best attempts at righteousness add up to rubbish there is a righteousness that comes from God. There is a righteousness that is given that is gifted that is graced to us by God through faith. The gospel is that you are not righteous but Christ is and he God became man to represent us, to take our place. He's righteous, you're a sinner. He comes here and takes the sin so that you can go here and get the righteousness. Jesus in my place. He takes my place. He pays my penalty so that I can be given his righteousness as a free gift. That is why it is by grace you are saved through faith. Faith. And guess what? I think we just forget this part of the verse. I don't know why there's any argument about this. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It couldn't be any more clear. This is not your own doing. It is the gift from God. So to be saved, you have to be righteous. And the only way to be counted righteous is through Jesus Christ living and dying and rising again in your place for the forgiveness of your sins. And then through faith, The gift of faith, when you have put your belief, your faith, your trust, your hope in him, his righteousness is now counted as your righteousness. Now in God's eyes, uh, this this is insane. In God's eyes, I am counted to be perfectly righteous. I can't watch a Carolina basketball game without sinning. In God's eyes, I am looked at as perfectly righteous. Because I'm in Christ. Because it's Christ's righteousness that covers me. And thus, it is in Christ that we find the righteousness, and it's the righteousness that's required for the relationship that then gives us the relationship with the very God who made us for Him. That will produce joy. Only a Jesus-generated joy is true joy. These guys have confidence in the flesh. Joy is confidence, as we've seen, that all is well, but it's a confidence in the gospel. That confidence comes from the realization and then the reminder that God loves me and that he is good and that he is in control and thus he is then working all things together for my good. And that because of Jesus, whatever I'm getting No matter how bad the circumstances are, whatever I'm getting right now is much better than I deserve to be getting. Because I deserve hell. That's the only thing. Anything above that is grace. That will produce a circumstance, independent, Jesus-generated joy that will carry you through this pain-filled, curse-full world. And that joy won't stop with you. Because finally, we see also that this is a community creating joy. Let's read 3 12 through 21, real quick. Paul writes in verse 12 Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. right, stop there. We're flying now. You know how it goes. The end is always shorter than the beginning. Uh, One of the other main themes of the letter that I just had to cut and pull out um, was this fact that this joy is also a life-changing or a life-sanctifying joy. We're going to see that grace works. It shapes us. It changes us. As we have gratitude for that grace, we experience joy. And that joy plays a role in making us more like Christ. So back in 127, Paul exhorts us to let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel. He's saying, be who you are in Christ, right? You are in Christ. Now live like someone who is in Christ. Christ, so we're going to have to touch on that as we work through the book. And Paul tells us that he's pressing on to do this himself in three, thirteen, and fourteen. But again, we tend to think of such things in individualistic terms. Listen, that's part of it, but it's not all of it. So he tells them in verse seventeen. He says, "You all, church, join together." in imitating me and others who live such a gospel-shaped life. He's saying you cannot do this without others. You cannot do this without the church. There is no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. If you are not a part of and among the people of God, I'm concerned about your soul. I don't see how you can have any confidence to actually claim to be a Christian because God is creating a community of people. And when he saves us, he unites us together into that community, that koinonia, that fellowship. But community is not easy. Let's keep reading. Just three verses. Look at four. Verses one through three. See if I can get this name right. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Stop. Joy creates community. Community creates problems. It just does. Right? It's a fact. We're sinners. Henry right? we talked about this in Sunday school. Right? I love that you talked about the church as a mini pressure cooker. Right? You shove sinners into close fellowship together, and guess what's gonna happen sometimes? Sin. Right? There there will be conflict. And it's happening in Philippians. It's happening in like the best church in the New Testament. There's there's conflict. Paul knows this. So he calls these two ladies to unity. He calls them to humility. He calls them to what he's already said to do at the beginning of chapter 2. We shouldn't be surprised that community is difficult. It always has been. And you know why that is? It's because community is good and we are bad. That's why it's hard. It always has been that way. Community, thus, is one of the main tools that God uses to to sanctify us and to shape us and to make us more like Christ. And so even when community gets difficult, it's still an opportunity to rejoice because God is doing something, even with, maybe especially with, that difficulty. Joy creates community, community creates problems, and God produces sanctification. Uh, through those problems. Let's keep reading. Verses 4 through 23. Let's finish. Here's the explosion of joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginnings of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need, of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You are God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Boom. You did it. You made it. You have now read a whole book of the Bible in one sitting. Maybe that's the first. Isn't God's word <clears throat> great? There's so much here. Let me just give you a few initial final thoughts and we'll be done. Here's why Paul wrote the letter in the first place. He's writing to express his thanks and his gratitude to the Philippians. Look at verse 10. He's rejoicing because of their love and concern for him. Verse 14, because of their kindness in sharing His trouble. That's our word, koinonia. They made themselves partakers of, they put themselves in communion with, in community with Paul's troubles. That's fellowship. Verse 15, they supported him financially. Verse 16, they did it again. Verse 17, now, while he's languishing in prison, they've done it again, sending him gifts. He's taken care of. He is well supplied. He is loved and supported by the community and the fellowship of the Philippians. That's what joy does. It's like a fountain. It overflows. That Jesus-generated joy that you have that cannot be touched by circumstances, cannot help but burst the banks and overflow for the good of others. And so it is the very nature of joy that joy creates community. Such a joy cannot be left to itself or that it's not joy because it's the nature of sin to turn us inward. When God's grace saves us, he changes us and turns us outward, first vertically to him and then horizontally to others, to the church. So it's this joy that creates this community and it's this joy that unites this community in humility and unity. Guys, this is what we need You need joy personally, we need joy corporately, and that's what Philippians, by God's grace, can help us with. It's such a wonderful gift that we can then say with Paul in maybe the most misused verse in the Bible in chapter four, verse 13, that I can do all things through him who strengthens me. that verse has nothing to do with Steph Curry's ability to drain threes and win championships. It has nothing to do with your ability to accomplish great things because God is with you. It's not about your ability. Read it in context. Verse 11, in whatever situation, you can now be content. You can be brought low. Verse 12, you can face hunger. In need, you can face the loss of a job, the loss of a relationship, cancer, life just not going the way that you thought it would. You can face these things with contentment because all is, will be, and must be well because of Christ. So, this is a circumstance immune joy because no circumstance can touch the most important thing about you that you are. In Christ and that you know Christ and that you have his righteousness and thus you are right with God and thus your future your eternal future is secure and it's all grace it's all a wonderful gift in Christ that you didn't deserve that's where gospel generated joy comes from and that's what this book is going to help us find uh, by the grace of God. Uh, so let's close by asking God uh, to bless this and to use this and to create this joy within us. Bow with me and let's let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I uh, thank you for the pleasure that it is uh, to publicly read your word uh, together. Lord, I thank you for A church that delights in the reading and preaching of your word. I thank you for what you are creating and building here at Woodside. Uh, Father, I pray that although it is difficult to even begin to scratch the surface of so many wonderful truths contained in this text. I ask that you would take the text itself. I ask that you would take these words. I pray that you would take one of them and drive it into our hearts. Father, grab us and convict us. Um, Father, I pray that we could cry out with Paul because of what we have read here, that truly to live is Christ, and that truly that we have a righteousness that comes from you, and so then we can rejoice, and we can face and do all things because of this great hope and this great joy that we have in Jesus. Father, we ask simply now uh, that you would do in us and for us the thing that I cannot do, um, and the thing that we cannot do for ourselves. Father, show us Christ, Uh, grow our love for him. Uh, Father, I struggle to be joyful. Uh, Father, I struggle not to be so quickly and easily affected uh, by mild circumstances. Uh, Father, I pray that you would use this book and I pray that you would use this series to work in me, to work in my family, uh, to work in my family, this church as well. Lord, we simply ask um, that you would bless the preaching and the reading of your word for your glory and for our good. And we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.